Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the land value tax proposal that Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan is floating as a way to wrest properties away from speculators and lower property taxes for homeowners. There was a really interesting article in the New York Times over the weekend that took a look at the land value tax, and it says it might be a solution not only for Detroit, but also for Silicon Valley in California, where they have a shortage of supply of land that has made affordable housing really difficult to come by. I had some real questions about that comparison, and so we reached out to two experts about uh, how that works and whether this solution can work for a place like Silicon Valley and Detroit at the same time. Nick Allen is a former manager of strategy and policy for the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation. He's now a doctoral candidate studying city planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. According to the article in the New York Times, he is the one who suggested the land value tax to Mayor Mike Duggan. Uh, Nick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Great to be back with you, Stephen. I'm also joined now by Alex Alsup. He is a vice president of research and development at Regrid, which is a property data company. He blogs on his Substack, The Chargeback, about property tax foreclosure and Detroit housing issues. Alex, always great to have you here as well. Welcome back to Detroit today. Thank you so much, Stephen. Great to be here. Okay, so Nick, I'm going to start with you. Uh, The New York Times lays all of this at your feet. (laughs) They say that you are the person who first suggested to Mayor Mike Duggan that the land value tax was a way to change the way that we deal with land in Detroit, but importantly, uh, and a a way to lower taxes for those of us who own homes, for instance, in Detroit, who pay some of the highest tax rates uh, in the country. I want to start with you telling us what the land value tax is, how it works, and why you thought this was the right solution for Detroit. Sure. Great to be back to talk about that, Stephen. Um, I guess the way I think about it is that a land value tax is really a good tax for general purposes. Um, the University of Chicago did a poll uh, earlier this month. They looked. At, they talked to senior economists and Nobel laureates about the Detroit land value tax plan specifically, And basically, everybody agreed that this would be a better tax for the city to adopt than its current taxing system. So I think it's worth thinking about, like, why is it that economists really broadly agree that a land value tax is a very good tax for local government? And I think there's two things that matter here. The first is about taxes themselves. So most taxes, sales taxes, income taxes, discourage the activity they tax. Mm -hmm. So they discourage sales or they discourage working um, or property taxes tend to discourage investment. And local taxes in a specific place will take that activity and move some of it elsewhere. The nice thing about a land tax is that it doesn't. So if cities want to attract housing or workers or more activities or more housing, uh, a land value tax is the least bad option uh, to raise revenues while making sure those activities are happening. But the other part of that's about uh, local governments and the, and the services they create. So when city services are getting better, uh, they raise land values. And that means that landowners actually capture a lot of the public value that, that occurs through government funding. And that's great for landowners, but it's a terrible way to keep funding services. If you aren't taxing land enough, you're essentially writing away public value to land markets. And I would say it's better to first reinvest the public value that's being created by services rather than letting it dissipate. 
So you want to start by raising revenues from that source and then thinking about other sources of revenue. Hmm. So, Nick, I want to I want to pose this question to, to, to you that I that, that popped into my head after I read this story in The New York Times. I thought it was a really interesting story. Of course, it gets deeply into the philosophy behind the land value tax. But but what caught my eye was this end of the story where they talk about the similarities I guess, between Silicon Valley and California and, and Detroit. And they say that, look, uh, the land value tax is being proposed in both places uh, as a solution. And as I said in the open, we have opposite land problems, I think, in these two places. High supply, oversupply in Detroit and low demand, uh, low supply and incredible demand in Silicon Valley and in California. And so I, I would love to have you talk about what you think is the, the, the connection between those two. Is that, can you solve both of those problems with this one solution? So I, I would take really different approaches in both places. Um, and one reason that we adopted the model we did in Detroit, or the reason we proposed it, uh, was because it was an approach used by other legacy cities, uh, not an approach used in California. I think the most important thing that a land value tax is doing is it's dealing with a reason that investment is scarce in Detroit. And that's Detroit's very high property taxes mm-hmm. relative to other places in the region. So Detroit should be doing everything it can to reward building and repairs and neighborhood upkeep. Um, it should be rewarding people for keeping their community intact. Uh, and people should benefit when they when they make those kinds of decisions. Um, so I, I think that's the reason is that you're actually using a land value tax to fund a reduction in these taxes that are really um, depleting Detroit's neighborhoods and shifting investment elsewhere. I think, you know, if, if I look at the reasons that housing has uh, declined in Detroit for a really long time, a lot of that is about regional dynamics in, in Michigan, right? I think, you know, you know this better than anybody, but I, that one of the big problems is that 3,500 new housing units are being built at the edge of the Detroit region every year, mm-hmm. and 3,000 older units are being built down or taken down in Detroit. So we need to look at the push and pull factors with that. You know, I think what this is dealing with is one of the push factors uh, that's that's pushing housing out of the city into other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Alex Alsop, I want to bring you into the conversation here. You and I have already had a conversation on Detroit today about the land value mm-hmm. tax. I know you're you're a proponent, but but I wonder what you make of this this idea of uh, how it will work to solve uh, the problems that we have uh, in Detroit, and and whether you can help me think through this question that 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 popped into my head after reading about it in the New York Times. Is this an approach that could solve both an oversupply, low demand problem, as well as a high demand, low supply problem? Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think um, one of the things about the, the, a land value tax is that, you know, not, not all land value taxes are Created the same way, <laughs> okay. right? That you can you can have different sort of variations and implementations. Now, the, you know, the New York Times article does get into the sort of like very purist idea of um, some some Georgists. I, I don't consider myself a, a Georgist. I, I you know I don't really come to this from um, the, the theory so much. But you know, there is this sort of very purist Georgist strain, which is that 
there should just be a land value tax. You should just tax land and, and nothing else, mm -hmm. which is, again, the sort of like most extreme uh, uh, version of uh, or interpretation of a, a, a land value tax. That's, you know, that's a very far away from what is being uh, discussed in, in Detroit. And I think, you know, for as, as Nick was saying, you can you can look at the problems of Detroit, you can look at the problems of California and say, hey, there's there's something to the land value tax approach. But I think you would wind up crafting um, the specific implementation of that very differently hmm. um, in 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 each place. Um, you know, the, yeah, obviously the conditions on the ground are, are very different. Um, you know, in, in Detroit, for instance, um, I think on on average, uh, a residential property has about 97 percent of its assessment, 96 or 97 percent of its assessment in the improvement on the property mm -hmm. in, in the structure. Only about three or four uh, percent of the assessed value comes from uh, the land. Um, in California, it's it, that, that that looks very different. I was just looking at some like properties in Los Angeles County and and in uh, San Francisco this morning. I think a Georgist would probably still say that 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 the ratio is lopsided, but it's much more like 70 30 improvements uh, to land. Hmm. And so, you know, given those changes, those differences in the conditions on the ground, you would craft a land value tax, uh, you know, very differently. Um, uh, but at the at the at the end of the day, I think something that you know Nick Nick is alluding to, and that uh, you know perhaps is in common um, between uh, uh, you know California and Detroit is that this is a question about to some extent this is a question about production incentives in in both places. So, Alex, you and I have talked many times about the the problems that we have with property and property taxes in in Detroit and. I guess one of the things that I'm having a hard time with, with this land value tax, is I guess how far it will reach into those problems. I mean, I, I don't have any yeah. any question that, that tax policy in Detroit is is pretty bad. Uh, I mean, there, there are lots of problems with it, of course. Um, but this fixing this problem, I, I, I wonder if, if you feel like it's being overpromised what it what it would do. The, the main problem we have, as I see it, is that we have all of this vacant land in the city. Some of it's held by private uh, citizens, but as I point out in the open, I mean, if you go to the land bank, ban, land bank website and look at the vacant lots that are available, I mean, you can go buy as much land as you want tomorrow in Detroit and <laughs> and pay you know yeah. less than a thousand dollars per lot. The, the the problem is that nobody wants that land, and I don't. I guess I'm not seeing how switching the tax system in this way reaches to that problem. And maybe it's not supposed to, but certainly I think that's what's in the back of people's minds when they're thinking about this. And, and I think, I think there's also, a, you know, a, a big difference between the, the sort of residential lots that are owned by the land bank and, and the residential lots owned by, um, <clears throat> owned by speculators and, other kinds of property um, and how the, how the uh, proposed land value tax um, changes would um, sort of manifest for you know the surface parking lots of downtown or or, or other 
you know, large vacant parcels. And I think Nick is probably best positioned to talk maybe about the distinction between those things. Um, you know, to me, uh, uh, and I think we, we may have talked about some of this, you know, la last time as well, but, you know, I think where you, where you see large um, portfolios of uh, vacant residential property, mm -hmm. um, you know, you might see different behavior there, you know, because these aren't people that own one or two or three uh, parcels where you see one or two or three residential, you know, vacant lots being held, they tend to be side lots um, owned by homeowners who are going to be, you know, exempt uh, from uh, the, the, the changes in the land value tax proposal. But if you own a portfolio of a thousand vacant lots um, or 300 or 400 vacant lots, which is not entirely uncommon, um, you might see a, a change in, in behavior um, in, those, um, in those circumstances. And I think that there is also, there is definitely a changing um, approach and consideration towards you know, sort of what, what have been the um, uh, least valuable and sort of least desired properties in in the city. These sort of these sort of vacant uh, vacant parcels, uh, vacant residential uh, parcels. Um, I was looking at you know auction data from uh, from last year from the 2022 uh, tax foreclosure auction, mm -hmm. and you know in the September auction last year the the median. Uh, vacant residential lot sold for $2,000, which is not a lot of money. Um, but you know, th this is the most distressed market um, marketplace that we have in the city, the tax foreclosure auction. Sure. And, you know, vacant residential lots were selling for, for $2,000. If you went back to an, a, any year between 2008 and 2019, and looked at um, the tax auction and the median sale price of residential vacant lots across the board, it was zero. Yeah. They, you know, the, the median vacant residential lot did not sell at all right. from 2008 to, to 2019. So I think there is there, you know, it, so you there, think there, demand there is are moving. changing dynamics. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, again, it's not, uh, it's not enormous. I don't want to overstate it, but it is, it is different to see, you know, uh, again, vacant vacant lots selling in the first round of the auction for a couple thousand dollars. Um, that's that's really not something we ever saw in the last decade. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about the proposed land value tax here in Detroit, what it might achieve, what might be unrealistic to expect that it could achieve. We'll be right back with more Detroit today. Talking about the proposed change to Detroit's property tax system, the land value tax that Mayor Mike Duggan says might inspire speculators who are holding large parcels of land in the city to either improve those properties or let them go so somebody else can develop them. But is that what would happen if we taxed land 
at a higher rate than we do. There was a story over the weekend in the New York Times that took a really close look at this idea of the land value tax, and at the end of it, it made a comparison that uh, made me scratch my head a little bit. It said that in Silicon Valley in California, where they face uh, a, a similar problem with land in the sense that there isn't enough of it and there isn't, it isn't accessible to enough people, uh, but for very different reasons. Of course, uh, they have low supply and really high demand. Seems like what we have here in Detroit is oversupply and not enough demand. My question is, is this land value tax, which is being talked about in both places, the solution to both problems. I've got two great guests with us right now who uh, are real experts on these questions. Nick Allen is a former manager of strategy and policy for the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation and is now a doctoral candidate studying city planning at uh, MIT in Boston. Uh, Alex Alsup is a vice president of research and development at Regrid, which is a property data company. He blogs on his Substack, uh, The Chargeback, about property tax foreclosure and Detroit housing issues. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know what you make of the land value tax proposal. Do you think it will change the dynamic in Detroit real estate, something that we desperately need to have happen? It is changing slowly, uh, but would this give it a jump start? Would this give us much more opportunity to create the kind of land use that would benefit Detroiters a lot more than what we see right now? 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Nick, before we get to our uh, our listeners, I do want to talk about the, 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 the big promise that's being made about the land value tax here, and that's that homeowners in the city who pay – these exorbitant rates and and you know shocking uh, numbers on their tax bills, uh, and I'm one of them, of course. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. That that we will get relief from this. That this will lower our our taxes in a way um, that will encourage more people, perhaps, to to, to buy and live in the city. Uh, it, it seems to me that that promise hinges on. Um, on this working in in exactly the way that it's being proposed, that that um, that you would get more revenue from these parcels that you're going to tax the land on uh, more, and that would allow you to uh, to lower you know lower taxes for people who have uh, who have houses on on land. But there, there's something about that premise that I think uh, even in this New York Times article. And, and in these questions that come up from it, I don't know. I guess I'm not entirely buying it. The, the behavior of these speculators, um, I think, is not predictable in that, in that way. And this idea that uh, raising the tax on that land will result in more revenue. And that's really the, the question here, right? Can the city raise more revenue from this to, to give relief to homeowners? Why should I believe that would happen? That's a great question. Um, so I, I want to start, though, with thinking more broadly about foreclosures under this proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to do that because I know a lot of Detroiters have experienced housing foreclosure and excess tax burdens for a long time and seen how foreclosure has has kind of ripped through a lot of neighborhoods. So I know this is really painful and relevant for a lot of people. 
And on that front, I think the study has really good news, right? It mm -hmm. reduces housing foreclosures, which means more revenues for the city uh, and fewer losses of revenue and fewer losses of residents over time. So I think, you know, that is an important channel of revenue that, that should be thought about first and maybe much more important than anything that happens in the land market. Um, so what you're implying, though, about land markets is, is an interesting idea, too, right? And that's this idea that uh, people will leave because the land has no value. Mm -hmm. um, so the implication there, right, is that it's the tax rates on investment don't matter at all. It's other factors that are driving disinvestment. Property taxes are completely irrelevant. Um, and that contradicts the evidence we've collected. What we show is that in general, places that implement land value taxes see values rise. It contradicts what I hear from residents about property taxes and the way that they impact neighborhoods. Um, but it is, I think, an imaginable worst case that this actually does nothing at all. So let me talk about that worst case. It's it's not that bad. Um, and the reason is because a land value tax is kind of a self-adjusting tax. If nothing gets better as a result of doing this, right, if we if re reducing the cost of owning housing in the city does nothing to make the city better, um, and the tax rate on vacant parcels doubles, the land prices on those vacant parcels falls. So you are not worse off as an owner of that vacant parcel. Your burdens are effectively the same. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the theory, right? And we can put that through an acid test of say what happens if 10% of vacant land in the city just forecloses and the uh, owners of those vacant parcels walk away. So in that case, then the city loses about 0.1% of its own source revenues. So those are, you know, that's all the revenues because it's collecting from taxes. And it's also netting more revenue from this reduction in home foreclosures. So for me, that, that scenario doesn't scare me very much from a mm -hmm. fiscal standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, and I also don't think it's realistic to expect that lots of people would walk away uh, from land uh, in this in this environment, except that they already have, right? I mean, that's why there's so much land in the land bank. Uh, as I said, if you go to the, the land bank website, which I did uh, on Sunday after reading the the, the, the Times article, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of land available that that people don't want. That's why it's in the land bank. I guess my part of my question is, why would this be different? What would be different about these privately held vacant lots that that arguably no one wants um then then what's going on in the land bank sure yeah um well so the land bank is really at the end of the abandonment pipeline mm -hmm. right it's it's a process in which housing gets disinvested over time uh and it because it's difficult to reinvest in that parcel it ends up in 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 public ownership uh the land bank is the owner of last resort in some sense so i think the really important thing to do with a proposal like this is to get to the front of that abandonment pipeline to reduce the cost of owning housing, of keeping housing up, um, maintaining neighborhoods in good repair. So I also think it's important to get to the other side and make it more attractive to put properties in the land bank back to active use. But I think dealing with those sides of the land bank rather than focusing on the current inventory is the most important way to reduce that inventory over time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alex, I want to give you a chance to, to, to talk about this as well. You and I had a conversation uh, about this mm -hmm. before. Uh, but but again, why why will this work? Why will this look different than what we're seeing right now with this overabundance of land that that people either don't want or don't feel like they can afford to develop in Detroit? Mm -hmm. Well, what, you know, one thing I think I, I wanted to make sure was was clear is that you know the tax reductions that homeowners will see under this proposal are not contingent on a change in behavior by speculators okay. right it's not 
right? Because what, what's happening is the millage rate is changing. Mm -hmm. um, the, the millage rate is increasing for land. There would be a decrease in the millage rate uh, uh, for um, improvements. And so it, it's, a, it's sort of a simple, simple matter of arithmetic uh, for um, uh, parcels across the city where, again, when you, when you make the, the changes that have been proposed uh, in, the, in the millage rate to uh, owner-occupied homes, you know, 97% of the, of the tax bills come down, independent of whatever other behavior happens in the city. Um, you know, the, 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 the taxes go up on um, uh, vacant parcels, vacant lots, because the millage rate on that land is increasing under the proposal. Right. So just, just to be clear that the, that the, the tax cut realized by homeowners is in no way contingent on speculators, you know, behaving differently, which sure. is definitely, I agree, would not, would not want to, uh, uh, you know, bet, bet on, uh, on their behavior <laughs> for my tax cut. Absolutely. Well, well, but I guess the contingency is, is, is on city revenue, right? If, if, yes, if yes. they lower taxes on homes, raise them on vacant lots, but don't collect the money of that increase, mm -hmm. then, then you're talking about, you know, opening up a gap in in city and, funding yeah right and that and that's what that that's what nick was really speaking to which is which is sort of in that worst case scenario you know what what would that gap look like and and as he was saying you know it's 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 very minimal um uh under under the the, the properties that are you know that are implicated here in 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 these tax changes um and and again i think it's it's also worth you know pointing out that we we are seeing different behavior in the world of, you know, residential vacant parcels, uh, va vacant lots. Um, the land bank does own a lot of property, you know, they've what 65,000 properties, something like that. Mm -hmm. But but they've also sold off a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, there are 25,000 or so um, side lots and neighborhood lots that they've sold off over the last um, six, seven years. Um, I think own it now properties are around 10,000, if I recall correctly. Um, so their inventory has come down quite a bit. And we are seeing, again, a, a different um, kind of demand for that uh, property. Home, home, you know, homeowners want those side lots. We're seeing own it now properties purchased and um, oftentimes rehabbed fairly successfully, sometimes not. Um, uh, but, but I think that we are seeing some changing dynamics within, um, that marketplace as well. And then, and then I'd also still want to come back to this distinction between what we might see as a result of the land value tax mm -hmm. amongst vacant lots, vacant residential lots, which I think are a very different kind of property from industrial sites, surface parking lots, um, and, and, and the changes in behavior between the owners of, you know, vacant residential parcels, uh, vacant lots, vacant houses, and those larger, um, those larger sites, the surface parking lots, the industrial properties, commercial properties that, you know, vacant, vacant commercial properties, things like that. I, I think there's a, there's a significant distinction in the kind of change in behavior that you might expect to see, which I, I again, I think that the Nick is probably better positioned to comment on uh, than I am, but um, but I, I would treat those very differently yeah, yeah. in my in my expectations. Okay. 
Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation and we are going to get to listeners, callers, and social media talking about the land value tax proposal, what it will do, what it might not do, and what other things we might think of to reform taxes in the city. And, of course, put more of the land to really great productive use. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. for a land value tax here in the city of Detroit. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Really glad that you've joined us. We've got two really great guests with us. Nick Allen is a former manager of strategy and policy for the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation. He's now a doctoral candidate at MIT uh, studying city planning. Alex Alsop is vice president of Regrid, which is a property data company here in the city. He blogs on his Substack, The Chargeback, about property tax foreclosure and Detroit housing issues. Uh, We're talking about what this land value tax would achieve here in Detroit, what problems it might solve for us, and maybe what the limitations might be. There was a really interesting article in the New York Times over the weekend that took a really close look at the land value tax, not just in the context of the city of Detroit, but in the national sense, uh, other cities that are really looking at uh, this question and made a comparison that caught my eye between Detroit and Silicon Valley, two places that face very different real estate problems. uh, But people in both places are considering this land value tax as a solution. Does that make sense? Uh, Can you solve Detroit's problems and Silicon Valley's problems with the same tool. Uh, We would love to hear from you as well during the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can make you part of the conversation that way. I'm going to start today on the phones with Chase in the Bagley neighborhood here in Detroit. Chase, welcome to the show. Morning, Stephen. Morning to, to Nick and to Alex. So I wanted to bring up one of my concerns about the, the, the land value tax proposal. I think it's really interesting, and I, I've enjoyed the conversation this morning. Um, I look at this as, you know, we've been talking about low-value land in much of the city, but there actually is very value, right? So if we're thinking about downtown, midtown, Corktown, New Center, there are places, and the administration has said that, you know, they want to incentivize landholders in those more valued areas to either sell their land. We're thinking about parking lots. We're thinking about, you know, under you, build on it or sell. Mm -hmm. What I'm concerned about is that we have a community benefits ordinance in Detroit. We have a community engagement ordinance. We as a city are asking developers to slow down, right, to slow down, to have conversations with residents, to be more thoughtful about the benefits that residents gain from development in Detroit in the most valued areas. Mm -hmm. But what this land value tax could do, because we're trying to push landowners to build, right? We want to have land go back into productive use. It will actually potentially speed things up, right? And I feel like those things are um, at Mm -hmm. odds with one another and may unintentionally provide perverse incentives for developers not to actually move through the community benefits process in a thoughtful, slow manner. Chase, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting point. 
and it is absolutely not something I had thought of as a, as a potential dynamic that this could introduce um, into the marketplace. Uh, Nick, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you were at the DEGC. Uh, obviously, DEGC thinks not just about development in places like downtown or, or, or neighborhoods that are, that are stable, but also in, in some of the more challenging areas. Would this, would this make things, would this heat things up too much, I guess, is what, what, what Chase is asking. Would this make us go too fast through the development process and, and not focus enough on what Detroiters want or, or actually need in their neighborhoods? Sure, that's a great question. I uh, and it's great to hear from Chase on this. Um, we I, he's done some terrific work on thinking about how to balance the equities of these arguments. Yep. Uh, I think overall, in Detroit, what we need is a lot more possibility to invest in repairs, upkeep, and maintenance in a lot of places, um, and a, a process that is doing that uh, in a way where people can make those decisions without going through city hall is a really important thing to have overall. Now. There are still lots of ways in which the community benefits process applies, and it's going to continue to apply uh, under this proposal, right? Anytime a public land sale occurs in the city, anytime somebody requests a tax abatement, that triggers a process of evaluation where we figure, where the city figures out what are the right set of things to make sure that this project maximizes the amount of value it's giving to other people too. Um, that will still be in place. I don't think a reduction from 86 to 71 mills will eliminate the tax abatement process. I don't think it will eliminate public land sales. Um, and so many of those, those, those features of the system are preserved under this model. What we're doing is letting more projects occur without having to go through 12 months of review and deliberation, especially smaller projects in neighborhoods. Mm. I, I do wonder, Nick, if you feel like uh, – so, so let's take downtown as an example. All of the parking lots that we have uh, that, that are owned um, usually by, by, of course, private interests – uh, and are not being developed for for various reasons. Do you think this will have more of an effect on those landholders than it would on the person who you know has fifteen parcels spread around the city, for instance, that they're just kind of sitting on, waiting to de- to to determine whether you know they can increase enough in value for them to to um, to develop? I, I guess I'm I'm getting at where in the city you think this will have the most effect uh, or or whether there's a difference at all? I think that's a really good nuance to speak to. Uh, So in neighborhoods, right, what what I would expect is a higher level of stability and a higher level of capital availability for lots of small repairs. And in downtown, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the the ripest sites for investment are places like existing parking lots now. Um, And in part by reducing the cost of putting money into those sites, and in part by raising the cost of holding them the way they are, mm-hmm. you change the incentives to do that. Um, I think that is more more likely to be the kind of place where you'd see more housing, more uh, more activity, more uh, more businesses. Uh, and I think one of the dilemmas right now is the current tax system essentially says parking is a phenomenal use of property in very high value locations. Mm-hmm. And if we want to change that, we need a system that says. Parking is a great use, and we need to allow for even higher uses available in those places. Yeah, again, Chase, really appreciate the call and uh, and the question. Uh, let's go next to John on the east side. John, welcome to the show. <clears throat> Thanks for taking my call, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, we've been involved in development down here in Jefferson Chalmers for decades, three decades or so. And in the 90s, we did uh, 25 habitat homes, and then 
we went into a 45-unit uh, low-income housing tax credit. And uh, trying to get land then was just impossible. And we actually built a foundation on one of the habitat lots we thought we owned, and it still sits there. The, the just the uh, they capped off the foundation, and you know then we have the Winston Place, which is a nine-story uh, apartment tower uh, on uh, the uh, north side of Jefferson, and that was almost totally redeveloped, <clears throat> and then it was held up by one vacant lot that took. Uh, away the parking that mm-hmm. the Detroit uh, demanded for this rehab of this building. And so I, I'm all anxious that something's going to change about land speculators and such that, that, <laughs> that cause us constant problems. And we haven't even mentioned that most of these speculators don't take care of their property. Right. Illegal dumpers dump on them all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and so... <laughs> I, I'm. Uh, so, are you skeptical about? The, absolutely, I'm you, skeptical about anything that, uh, that, that that people do. But and then I, you know, I followed the the side lot program. You know, we put about seven or eight community gardens down here about a dozen years ago, at just because we knew we couldn't uh, put houses back on every vacant lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, this whole side lot program, I, I've gone on a. a about a half a dozen city-sponsored meetings, and what they're saying is that unless you take and transfer that side lot into your main property, it's going to be taxed different than your property. So, uh, there, yeah, uh, John. I mean, that's a question that a lot of people have asked. I understand that there are going to be some considerations for people who have uh, these side lots, and so that they don't get caught up in in the the LVT, the, the land value tax. Um, uh, Nick Allen, I'll give you a chance to answer. Uh, John's concerns here. Yeah, I think John's pointing to something that is a really hard truth about uh, doing neighborhood development right now, which is you can find anybody who wants to, you know, turn, turn a quick buck to stand in the way and hold on to a parcel of property that you need. Um, I think that's really frustrating. Also frustrating is the fact that, that banks are often fearful to lend in these areas in part because of high property taxes. Um, and we're changing those, those types of systems is a really important part of the proposal that's being suggested here. Um, I think there are other things that need to happen. Uh, John was speaking to the way that parking minimums can often uh, uh, hurt the types of investments that neighbors want. Um, and it sounds like that would have been could have been part of the solution in this case, too. Mm. Uh, Alex, I wonder what you think about this, the, the, these struggles that people are having uh, with development, with with neighborhood based development. That's the thing that that pops out to me in, in John's questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I think yeah, I think you know, Nick Nick has has um, shared some some important thoughts here. You know, one one of the things that just comes to mind for me in in John's question in in his location is that border on Alter Road between Gross Point and Detroit, north mm-hmm. of Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, the 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 you know anybody who's you know been out there and lives in the city knows how extraordinary that change is from one side of Alter Road to the other um, when you cross from Detroit into Gross Point or, yeah. or vice versa. Um, you know, the housing stock that used to be out there was was very similar on both sides of, uh, of the border, you know, 70, 80 years ago. Um, and, and, you know, there are obviously many, many different factors um, uh, that, that went into what, 
what what has happened there. But but one of them is is our very different millage rates and very yeah. different um, tax rates from one side of the street um, to the other. Again, um, uh, John, really appreciate your call and uh, your great observation there. Let's go next to Joe in Rochester Hills. Joe, what's on your mind? Hey, 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 Steve. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm kind of with John on this thing. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's just a gimmick. Hmm. I mean, uh, no one's really been able to quantify. <laughs> I mean, what what is the real benefit at the end of the day? It's, uh, it's a hell of a lot of speculation. Um, to me, a lot of work's being put into this. And we're and it's not getting to the real core problem. Why won't people build? Why won't they come? Why won't they build? Huh. I mean, there, if, if you go in Metro Detroit, when they're around, there's vacant property all around. People grab it, they pay good bucks for it, and they build on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. why isn't that happening in Detroit, uh, Joe? I mean, that's that that is the million dollar question. And and I mean, uh, there's no question also that part of the pitch here is that this will make it more likely that people will make that decision and I guess will make it easier uh, for people to do that. I, I, I hear the skepticism that, that, that you have. I, I have a little bit of it myself. But but Nick Allen, uh, again, what is it – let's repeat again. What What is it that, that we're saying will happen that will change that dynamic, which – and Joe's right. That is the primary problem, that we can't get people – um, to think that it's affordable or profitable or reasonable even to build on all of this vacant land? I think the underlying question here is what you think is driving those challenges mm-hmm. that disperse investment out of the city into other places. Uh, I would say that's, that's a problem with many causes, right? Uh, one is that Michigan is heavily subsiding infrastructure on the periphery of the region uh, and driving up sort of long-term infrastructure debt while also pushing investment out. Uh, I would also say to you that a really important part of the reasons people struggle to make investments work in Detroit is because of very high tax rates. And so what we want is a tax that is a way to raise revenue without freighting every single project with a huge long-term cost. And over the life of every dollar you put into Detroit, the city and other local governments have to collect 40 cents under the current system. So if you're looking at those bets right now, if you're looking for reasons that investment keeps migrating out of the city into other places, that's a really important reason. It's not the only one, but it's a really it's a thing that the city can address and tackle today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to take one more quick call here. Russ in Detroit. Russ, go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Hey. Uh, I uh, I have the privilege of being an organizer for uh, Detroiters for Tax Justice. So. Uh-huh. We're the folks that fought this in Lansing uh, on a continuing basis over the last six weeks. And we pointed out to the legislators that this plan violates two elements of the Michigan Constitution, that uh, the tax increase for for the purpose of growth on vacant land is contrary to market-based development stimulation. We do tax uh, breaks and tax abatements for incentives downtown for the folks that some of these guys used to work for. And um, thirdly, we uh, uh, we believe that the uh, tax increase for the purpose of punishing, and that's the words the mayor has used, of punishing uh, blight owners is more likely to lead to property abandonment yeah. and foreclosures uh, than investment and development. So, so, Russ, I don't want to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time, and I do want to give the guests a, a chance to, to answer some of that. Uh, uh, Nick, this, this question about the Constitution has come up 
a couple of times. So we've only got about a minute left, though. Yeah, I'll say one reason that tax reform is designed in this way is to make sure it's a uniform property tax reduction on all taxpayers, mm-hmm. which is what the Constitution requires. And the specific land value tax that's imposed is a uniform tax increase on all land value. So it meets those constitutional thresholds. Um, and I also want to say, you know, I actually really agree with Russ that a system where investment only works by exception is a bad system. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a system in which the rules work for everybody, and that's a system that's going to drive equity. Yeah, yeah. and you feel like the, the LVT is a, is a step in that direction. Absolutely, yes. It's not the only thing needed, but it is a step in that direction. Yeah. Okay, uh, Nick Allen and Alex Alsop, uh, I, I was right to corral you guys for this conversation. You know a lot about this stuff, and uh, <laughs> it's really great to have you explain it to our listeners. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to close out our first portion of our Reckoning 375 series by reimagining what doing this project could look like on the east side of downtown Detroit. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. And you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.